0: Welcome to the Penguin Podcast.
1: Hello, I'm Roy McMillan and welcome to the Penguin Podcast, in which we'll be delving into the powerful, dangerous, empowering and crippling world of money. I think it's fair to say that as a subject we're all obsessed with it, from splashing out on an expensive holiday to trying to save or just make ends meet, from dreaming about what we'd do if we won the lottery to how to make a profit if we don't. Whether you're trying to feed your family on a tight budget, or capable of bringing down society just with your bonus, there's something in today's podcast for you, and there's also some advice on tomatoes. First of all, we take a look at a relatively new question that has arisen thanks to the digital revolution. When so much is available for free, how do you make any money? This is a question that Nicholas Lovell, author of The Curve, has answered time and again as a consultant in the gaming industry. And here he is to explain to us what The Curve is.
2: So, Nicholas, your book is an answer to a question that's possessing a lot of people at the moment, which is how you make money when everything is increasingly available for free. Could you tell us a little bit about how that works? Sure. So The Curve is absolutely that. We're entering a digital age where it is as easy to share something for free, well, as easy as it's ever been before, that isn't always your choice. I mean, sometimes that sharing is illegal rather than legal. But for me the real challenge is, is not so how to deal with piracy, it's how to deal with your competitors starting to give stuff away for free and making money from it. So the curve shows you how to make money in that stage, uh, in that process, and it comes in three parts. The first part is that you have to find an audience, and that is where free is at its most powerful. But there's no point in finding an audience if you've just found them and have no way of making money from them again. So the next stage is to um, earn the right to talk to them again. So any free piece of material which you put out, to my mind, should have some form of connection to some way of speaking to them again. That might be, you know, they follow you on Pinterest or on Twitter or on Tumblr or on Facebook, depending on the nature of your audience. They give you an email address. They come to your website. In some way, they move from being just a consumer of your free stuff to somebody who you have the potential to talk to again. And then the final stage is to um, what I enable what I call superfans, and superfans are those people who love what you do enough to want to give you money. The important bit is that a super fan is not just somebody who pays the same amount as they used to pay for a for a book. They will pay ten times a hundred times a thousand times what they used to pay, but for something that speaks to them in some important way. It might be a physical artifact, it might be an event, it might be ownership of all the books by a particular author or it might be the chance to go and meet a musician in the flesh. Um, In the case of Amanda Palmer um, uh, who is an American uh, ukulele player among other things she did a Kickstarter campaign and one of the tiers was for people to pay $10,000 for her to come to their house and paint them. Um, She did specify that she would paint them in the nude or clothed so um, sometimes meeting in the flesh can be very particular. (laughs) Um, And you talk a lot in the book about taking people, not just identifying and having people who are interacting with you all those levels, but taking people on a journey from from one through to the next. Yes, I think that one of the, the challenges which we have in a digital age is uh, is a combination of discovery when there is just so much content available, uh, both free and and paid and then the ability to turn people who have discovered your content, books, music uh, or anything else uh, into in, into superfans and although I keep referring to content, um, this stuff is not just about, um, about digital media uh, it applies just as heavily to any industry which uses content marketing as the heart of their relationship with their customers and that can apply to everything from flour and coffee to swimming pools and high end cars um, it, it, it's all of those things and the journey for me is around you know how do you find an audience having found them how do you talk to them again and then on top of that how do you make lots of uh lots of money Uh, one example which doesn't even use free is um, Nespresso coffee machines, where your starting entry point is that you pay 160 pounds minimum to own an Nespresso machine. Um, and having got that, Nestle then has a direct relationship with you because you buy your little pods at 50 pence a pop, either from uh, Nespresso shops or from their online website. And all of a sudden, Nespresso um, or Nestle, which has a whole bunch of traditional instant coffee uh, products where it is at the mercy of the retailers for how they choose to position it, has a direct relationship with high-end coffee drinkers who are spending if they drink just one coffee a day over 200 pounds a year with them and many of them will obviously be spending a lot more than that Um, and that is the start of a superfan strategy then they've started experimenting with limited edition coffee runs where each pod cost two pounds a go Um, and they've done those at sort of sellouts and so on Uh, you know so they brought a single coffee Uh, brand in and said, when it's gone, it's gone, um, and sold out within three weeks. So you're beginning to see a strategy there which goes, I couldn't have done that in a pre-internet age because it was too difficult to take the orders. I needed the retailers to aggregate the orders from customers and to spread them around the country. In the digital age, I need the retailers to start the process. Here's an espresso machine. Um, But having got that, I can build this direct relationship with customers. I can do direct debits. I can do subscriptions. I can do special offers. I can do emails. And I never, I'm no longer as... Nestle at the um, uh, at risk of the retailer suddenly deciding they don't like what I'm doing and cutting, cutting off my retail space. And who else do you think is doing this well? What other businesses do you think are doing this well? Well, the, the media industries, uh, the, the digital content industries have been hit by this is- issue that you can freely share content Um, by freely I mean it's very cheap it's very easy and lots of particularly young people have got into the habit of doing it Um, so the digital industries have been hit hard. Um, The games industry has been particularly good at responding as well as games like Grand Theft Auto being sold in the very traditional way and selling a billion dollars of product in the first three days at the other extreme you've got games like Candy Crush Saga which is free Um, it's available on the App Store and on Android Um, it's uh, what are the figures in mind 250 million people played it in the last month 93 million people played it yesterday and the company is making about 1.4 billion dollars from that game alone despite the fact that in any given month only 4% of people spend any money at all so I think games is doing really well and then it's not so much other industries which are doing well but we're seeing other businesses within particular industries King Arthur Flour is an American miller they sell flour but they have a curve strategy, which at the free end has advice through YouTube videos and free helplines and, uh, and the web. Um, they sell flour as a sort of basic product. And then at the high end, uh, some of their biggest Fans and customers pay up to $500 to go to one-day masterclasses for baking and cooking and all sorts of other uh, things that use flour uh, in the Vermont headquarters. Um, And that business has grown from being the fifth largest miller in the States to the second largest with a turnover just shy of $100 million. On the back of a curved strategy around a product which is resolutely undigital, you can't get less digital than flour.
1: That was Nicholas Lovell talking about The Curve, which he discusses in more detail in his book of the same name, out in paperback on May the 1st. Money is the only thing everybody takes completely seriously. John Lanchester said that, or something very like it. Or at least a character in one of John Lanchester's books said that, or something very like it. Anyway, getting enough money is so hard that even cooks are now obliged to show you how to save the stuff. For you today, two of our cookery writers have some handy tips. First up, I have How to Shop Smart by Jamie Oliver from his latest cookbook, Save with Jamie. Number one. Menu planning is great, but don't let it restrict you. Flexi planning is your best option. It will help you waste less and means you won't get caught out if your plans change. Build in the option of embracing a few bits in the freezer for days you need last-minute meals. Look at offers before you shop and see if you can shape any meals around them but also embrace great value seasonal produce wherever you can backed up by your store cupboard staples. A bit of creativity while you're shopping combined with some forethought before you set off is what's going to serve you most well. Number two. Try shopping with cash only and leaving your cards at home. That way you'll be forced to think more about what you're buying and stick to whatever budget you set yourself. Number three. Don't shop when you're hungry. We've all done it, and if you're not careful, you end up with a whole load of extra bits you don't really need, plus a snack for making your way round the supermarket. Number four. When you're at the supermarket, don't be tempted by things like buy one, get one free schemes. Remember, it's only a bargain if you need it or can genuinely use it. The one exception is if you see good quality fresh meat or fish on offer, and you know you've got space to store it in the freezer. Pick it up while it's at a great price, and ensure you freeze it ASAP. Number five. A lot of supermarkets now have different policies on reducing goods that are nearing their sell-by date. Get to know the times when products are discounted, and take advantage of that if there are things you need. Or shop at markets, as these almost always reduce their produce at the end of the day, and you can pick up great bargains. A box of beautiful, almost overripe tomatoes, for example, can easily be turned into passata, soup, sauce, or used in a delicious meal like sausage panzanella. Or though Jamie doesn't say this, you could just, you know, eat the tomatoes. Maybe that's a bit too boho-chic for you. Either way, you can find out more ways to save money on your groceries, along with some mouth-watering recipes, and frugal ones too, from Jamie's book Save with Jamie. We'll have some more advice on cooking on a budget from Jack Munro later. But first, the death of money. Curb your instinctive hurrahs. Obviously, a book about the death of money is a tad premature, given all the fuss about the stuff. And when the deserving impoverished are still struggling to survive while trying to make sense of a world where the criminally greedy are successful, influential, and then spend their leisure time telling those less rich that they should turn their heating down if they want to save cash. But James Rickards thinks another financial collapse is looming and its victims will be the small investors. Here's a reading from The Death of Money, where Rickards raises the question
3: of what we can learn from the past. Few Americans in our time recall that the dollar nearly ceased to function as the world's reserve currency in 1978. That year, the Federal Reserve Dollar Index declined to a distressingly low level, and the US Treasury was forced to issue government bonds denominated in Swiss francs. Foreign creditors no longer trusted the US dollar as a store of value. The dollar was losing purchasing power, dropping by half from 1977 to 1981. US inflation was over 50% during those five years, Starting in 1979, the International Monetary Fund had little choice but to mobilise its resources to issue world money, Special Drawing Rights, or SDRs. It flooded the market with 12.1 billion SDRs to provide liquidity as global confidence in the dollar declined. We would do well to recall those dark days. The price of gold rose 500% from 1977 to 1980. What began as a managed dollar devaluation in 1971, with President Richard Nixon's abandonment of gold convertibility, became a full-scale route by the decade's end. The dollar debacle even seeped into popular culture. The 1981 film Rollover, starring Jane Fonda, involved a secret plan by oil-producing nations to dump dollars and buy gold. It ended with a banking collapse, a financial panic, and global riots. That was fiction but indeed it was powerful, perhaps prescient. While the dollar panic reached a crescendo in the late 1970s, lost confidence was felt as early as August 1971, immediately after President Nixon's abandonment of the gold-backed dollar. Author Jeanette Tavacoli describes what it was like to be an American abroad the day the dollar's death throes become glaringly apparent. She says, Suddenly Americans travelling abroad found that restaurants, hotels and merchants did not want to take the floating rate risk of their dollars, On Ferragosto, mid-August holiday, banks in Rome were closed and Americans caught short of cash were in a bind. The manager of the hotel asked departing guests, do you have gold? Because look what your American president has done. He was serious about gold. He would accept it as payment. I immediately asked to prepay my hotel bill in lira. The manager clapped his hands in delight. He and the rest of the staff treated me as if I were royalty. I wasn't like those other Americans with their stupid dollars. For the rest of my stay, no merchant or restaurant wanted my business until I demonstrated I could pay in lira. The subsequent efforts of Fed chairman Paul Volcker and the newly elected Ronald Reagan would save the dollar. Volcker raised interest rates to 19% in 1981 to snuff out inflation and make the dollar an attractive choice for foreign capital. Beginning in 1981, Reagan cut taxes and regulation which restored business confidence and made the United States a magnet for foreign investment. By March 1985, The dollar index had rallied 50% from its October 1978 low, and gold prices had dropped 60% from their 1980 high. The U.S. inflation rate fell from 13.5% in 1980 to 1.9% in 1986. The good news was that Hollywood released no rollover 2. By the mid-1980s, the fire was out, and the age of king dollar had begun. The dollar had not disappeared as the world's reserve currency after 1978, but it was a near-run thing and now the world is back to the future. A similar constellation of symptoms to those of 1978 can be seen in the world economy today. In July 2011, the Federal Reserve Dollar Index hit an all-time low, over 4% below the October 1978 panic level. In August 2009, the IMF once again acted as a monetary first responder and rode to the rescue with a new issuance of SDRs, equivalent to $310 billion increasing the SDRs in circulation by 850%. In early September, gold prices reached an all-time high, near $1,900 per ounce, up more than 200% from the average price in 2006, just before the New Depression began. 21st century popular culture enjoyed its own version of rollover, a televised tale of financial collapse called Too Big to Fail.
1: That was a reading from The Death of Money by James Rickards, which is out now. This is The Penguin Podcast, this time all about what makes the world go round. And I don't mean physics. On a similar note to Ricard's exploration of financial crises, Jacob Sol shows how the use and misuse of financial bookkeeping has determined the fates of entire societies. In this interview, he explains the thesis underlying his book The Reckoning. This book
4: looks to explain uh, the history of financial accountability and why we have so many crises of accountability and why we seem to have them over and over again and so rather than looking at financial crisis as something that happens as a cycle what this book shows is that it has a long history and indeed it's a tradition that we have that that in some ways has built up over time into the financial sort of crisis and crisis of accountability that we're having
0: now And what can we do now? How's the history of accounting? How can it help us now?
4: Well, what's quite remarkable is after the financial crisis of 2008, um, I looked around and found that there was no history of financial accountability, which in itself startled uh, me. And I found that actually quite unnerving. And that inspired this book. So the first thing I thought is we need a history of this. We need to know where financial accountability comes from, how it can be built. Uh, uh, and and why it doesn't work. And that's what this book is about.
0: So how does your book tie in with the current uh, expenses scandal?
4: Well, what's interesting is that England is actually having this scandal at all. Um, you know, people are sort of up in arms about it, and it's on the front page of the newspaper. In fact, the word accountability is in the news. Uh, that's the first step to getting accountability. We need the news, we need the press to demand accounts. If you want accountability, this is historically how it's worked, is that the press comes in and and the public uh, pressures the press in some way, or I don't know exactly how the process works. But there are demands for accounts. There are demands for accountability. And that starts the ball rolling towards some sort of accountability. So Britain is having a sort of moment of accountability. We don't know how it's going to turn out so far people don't seem very satisfied with it. The question is whether the press and the public will continue pressuring the government uh, and the financial sector for more accountability. One can only hope that they will.
0: And why should people read your book?
4: Well, first of all, this is the first history of financial accountability, uh, which also means in some ways it's one of the first grand overviews of the history of accounting, because without accounting there is no uh, financial accountability. And what it shows is that accounting, which seems so boring and mundane, and really it can be, it's not something many people enjoy doing, nonetheless is remarkably dramatic. I mean, we see you know f- kings like Louis the Fourteenth making golden notebooks, keeping them meticulously, and then one day destroying them and and undermining France's economy and and causing, you know upheaval and leading to things like the French Revolution. Um, We see the British during the height of their empire, British industrialists mastering accounting and really creating modern industry. Uh, And we see the Dutch creating modern finance out of not just accounting, but the idea that they needed to build accountable societies if capitalism and industry were to work well and be sustainable. And this tells the story in many cases, not just of the crises and the places where it doesn't work but indeed where it does work. And there have been these sort of grand moments of countries and leaders saying we need accountability, we need to build an accountable society. They do it, and we see economic growth and uh, prosperity and even uh, moves towards democracy.
1: That was Jacob Soule talking about financial accountability and the history of accounting, which he discusses widely in his book The Reckoning, which is out now. Still to come, how losing it can make you make it, a romantic comedy with money at its heart, and just how staggeringly out of touch with morality Wall Street still is. But it's back to the kitchen now, with Jack Monroe, who once found herself with a shopping budget of £10 a week to feed herself and her young son. By embracing her local supermarket's basics range and having a flair for creativity, she has created over 100 delicious and outrageously cheap recipes for her book, A Girl Called Jack. Here she is with her top tips for saving in the kitchen.
0: Firstly, have a look at what's in your kitchen already. Um, Before I go shopping, I always open my cupboards, my fridge, my freezer, have a look and see what I've already got, and then sort them out into food groups so that I can sort of make some sort of attempt at a healthy, balanced diet. So I see what carbs I've got, what protein I've got, what fruit I've got, what veg I've got. If there's any major gaps in those piles, like I don't have any protein, any beans or fish or anything like that, or I'm seriously lacking in the fruit department, those are the things that I prioritise when I go and do my shopping. And then I bring it all home and I go... Um, and I set my stuff up for the week and I have a good look at what I've got and I throw stuff together and I start to come up with ideas. Um, When in the supermarket or the shop or wherever you like to shop, um, I like to shop across the whole store you can get fruit and vegetables much more cheaply frozen or tinned than you can fresh, but then there are some things that are cheaper to buy fresh than they are to buy frozen or tinned. So it's about having a bit of a scout around, seeing what's available to you and what's the best value for money. Also downshifting the brands that you buy. If you normally buy the premium brands, buy the store's own brand. If you normally buy the store's own brand, try their absolute value or budget range and see if you notice the difference. If you do it one ingredient at, at a time, you know, if you don't like it for one week, what will you have had? Like a slightly your worst tin of tomatoes than you might have had the week before and you can always shift back but I guarantee you nine times out of ten you probably won't notice the difference and that's where the penny starts to add up and make the savings is when you're um, spending a lot less on the basic ingredients that you're just going to throw into um, a big pot of a stew or a casserole or a curry or whatever anyway. And what would you say are the key cupboard staples? Well, My key cupboard staples are tinned tomatoes. I get a bit of a panic on if I don't have a tin of tomatoes in my cupboard because they seem to form the basis of all of my recipes. I had one of my readers get in touch to say they didn't like tomatoes and I was a bit stumped. I was like, um, there's probably not much on here for you. Um, so tin tomatoes is one of those things that if I've got some I can make a meal out of them um, even if it's just eating them out of the tin with a spoon. Um, <laughs> hey, We all have those days. Um, and Then it's things like rice, pasta, herbs and spices are a really good one. You can take that one tin of tomatoes and if you add a pinch of turmeric and a little bit of cumin to it, you've got the basis for curry but if you add a handful of basil leaves you've got the basis for a a, uh, tomato pasta sauce or you can sling it with some rice and some chicken stock and make a good hearty risotto out of it so you know herbs and spices are one of those things that pretty much kept me going and helped me cook all the different cuisines and dishes that I do um, simply by making really simple ingredients a lot more interesting. And so what is your or your son's favourite meal? Oh well with my son it's anything he can dip into something else um, usually ketchup made from those tomatoes um, <laughs> <laughs> and um, so I try to be creative with what I with what I cook so with fish cakes when I'm making myself fish cakes I make him tiny little ones make little fish nuggets instead because he can dip them in um, fritters courgette fritters bean burgers any falafels anything I can roll up give to him and he can pick up in his little three year old hand dunk into a pot of red sauce or chutney or whatever and stuff in his mouth and, and he's away he doesn't really care what's in it as long as he can dip it that's the phase we're in at the moment (laughs) And um, what about grocery shopping advice? Do you think it's better to do a massive shop at the beginning of the month or do you have your staples and you build on it? Or are you one of those that will go to the supermarket at the end of the day and try and get the last minute deals? It's a combination of all of them. Um, I buy my vegetables in bulk because it's cheaper. So then I only have to buy them every few weeks because you're not going to get through a kilo and a half of carrots in a week. Um, but I'm not gonna buy them loose because it's a much more expensive way to do so. So I do like a big veg shop every couple of weeks. Um, I pop in and get meat and things on the discount at the end of the day if I can if I can take my son along with me if it's not too late at night. But generally, I'm a bit of a pop-to-the-shop person. I work with what I've got in my store cupboard, which I've amassed over a period of time. It sounds like I'm fancy, and it is basically rice, herbs, and spices. Um, And I see what I've got in the cupboard and think, oh, what could I make out of this? And if I'm just missing one thing, I think, could I do without it? Could I use something else? Could I substitute something else? Or just dart to the shop, pick up that one thing, maybe something for breakfast the next morning, and come back again. So I'm quite a versatile, easy shopper and um, yeah I think it's different things work for different people but I don't like to do great big monthly shops because it's a bit overwhelming it's a bit daunting to spend all that money in one go and I'm not that organized to plan ahead that far as to what I might fancy eating in two or three weeks time I'm a bit off the cuff and prefer to cook like that brilliant and final question just coming back to the swapping ingredients point that you just raised Mm -hmm. um, what have you found are the best sort of substitutes for something this goes back to what I said at the beginning about, um, about breaking things out into their food groups. So I tend to swap carbs out all the time. If I want to make a risotto but I haven't got any rice, if I've got pearl barley or couscous, red lentils, something like that, I'll use that instead or I can even take the construct of the risotto I was going to make and make it into a warm potato salad if I've got a tin of potatoes. I look at ingredients as to what their function is in a meal. So something like um, green vegetables. If I want to make a alla genovese but I haven't got any green veg to chuck in it, I think, well, have I got scre- spring greens? Or I could, use, I could use cabbage. I could use loads and loads of herbs, mint, basil. I could use, like, half dead salad leaves I use whatever I've got kicking around in the fridge with root vegetables I swap out carrots for parsnips or turnips or sweet or potatoes I just look at something and think what's your role in that recipe is it flavour is it texture is it because you're a root is it because you're an onion and see what I've got that would give that same effect
1: Jack Monroe on creating simple quick and tasty meals on a small budget she even suggests just eating the tomatoes and she's an international publishing sensation So there. Her book, A Girl Called Jack, is available now. One fictional mum who knows what it's like living on a tight budget is Jess Thomas from The One Plus One by Jojo Moyes. In this clip from the audiobook, wealthy computer whiz Ed Nichols is in a car giving a lift to Jess, a woman whom he knows only as his cleaner and barmaid, and her two children, her recently mugged son Nicky and her maths prodigy daughter
5: Tansy. It began to rain shortly after Portsmouth. Ed drove through the back roads, keeping at a steady 38 all the way, feeling the fine spit of raindrops from the half-inch of window he had not felt able to close. He found he had to focus on not putting his foot too far down on the accelerator the whole time. It was a constant frustration, going at this sedate speed, like having an itch you couldn't quite scratch. In the end, he switched on cruise control. Nicky fell asleep. Jess muttered something about him only coming out of hospital the previous day. He half wanted to ask her what had happened, but he wasn't sure he wanted to know quite how much trouble this family was likely to be. Given the snail's pace, he had time to study Jess surreptitiously. She remained silent, her head mostly turned away from him, as if he had done something to annoy her. He remembered her in her hallway now, demanding money, her chin tilted – she was quite short – and her unfriendly eyes unblinking. And then he remembered her behaviour at the bar, that she had had to babysit him all the way home. She still seemed to think he was an arsehole. Come on, he told himself. Two, three days maximum, and then you never have to see them again. Let's play nice. So, do you clean many houses? She frowned a little. Yes. Do you have a lot of regulars? It's a holiday park. Did you... Was it something you wanted to do? Did I grow up wanting to clean houses? She raised an eyebrow, as if checking that he had seriously asked that question. Um, no. I wanted to be a professional scuba diver. But I had tans and I couldn't work out how to get the pram to float. Okay, it was a dumb question. She rubbed her nose. It's not my dream job, no, but it's fine. I can work around the kids, and I like most of the people I clean for. Most of. Can you make a living out of it? Her head shot round. What do you mean? Just what I said. Can you make a living? Is it lucrative? Her face closed. We get by? No, we don't, said Tansy from the back. Tans... You're always saying we haven't got enough money. It's just a figure of speech, she blushed.
1: That was an extract from Jojo Moyes' The One Plus One, read by Ben Elliot. And in case you've seen the ads for it all over the trains, yes, that's the one. It's out now. Companies are always trying to cut costs, and making mistakes is obviously a waste of time and money. Well, apparently not, according to Ed Catmull, the co-founder of Pixar Animation Studios and president of both Pixar and Walt Disney Animation Studios. In this clip from the audiobook edition of Creativity Inc., Catmull reveals how failure, even expensive and distressing failure, can be one of the most valuable learning experiences. He discusses a low point at Pixar when, with heavy hearts, they shut down production on a film that just wasn't working. But still, he says... It was an investment worth making.
6: The Pixar way is to invest in a singular vision, and we'd done so in a major way on this project. We didn't consider replacing the director. The story was his, and without him as the engine, we didn't think we could push it to completion. So in May 2010, with heavy hearts, we shut it down. There are some who will read this and conclude that putting this film into production in the first place was a mistake. An untested director, an unfinished script. It's easy to look back after the shutdown and say that those factors alone should have dissuaded us at the outset. But I disagree. While it cost us time and money to pursue, to my mind it was worth the investment. We learned better how to balance new ideas with old ideas, and we learned that we had made a mistake in not getting very explicit buy-in from all of Pixar's leaders about the nature of what we were trying to do. These are lessons that would serve us very well later as we adopted new software and changed some of our technical processes. While experimentation is scary to many, I would argue that we should be far more terrified of the opposite approach. Being too risk-averse causes many companies to stop innovating and to reject new ideas, which is the first step on the path to irrelevance. Probably more companies hit the skids for this reason than because they dared to push boundaries and take risks, and yes, to fail. To be a truly creative company... You must start things that might fail. Peter
1: Altshuler, reading an extract from Ed Catmull's part autobiographical, part historical business book, Creativity, Inc., available now. We end this podcast with an audiobook clip from the hotly anticipated new book from Michael Lewis. In Flash Boys, Lewis scrutinizes Wall Street and exposes the rigged, out-of-control, out-of-sight world of some of the richest and most powerful people in the world.
7: I suppose this book started when I first heard the story
1: of Sergei
7: Aleinikov, the Russian computer programmer who had worked for Goldman Sachs and then, in the summer of 2009, after he'd quit his job, was arrested by the FBI and charged by the United States government with stealing Goldman Sachs' computer code. I'd thought it strange, after the financial crisis, in which Goldman had played such an important role, that the only Goldman Sachs employee who had been charged with any sort of crime was the employee who had taken something from Goldman Sachs. I'd thought it even stranger that government prosecutors had argued that the Russians shouldn't be freed on bail because the Goldman Sachs computer code, in the wrong hands, could be used to manipulate markets in unfair ways. Goldman's were the right hands? If Goldman Sachs was able to manipulate markets, could other banks do it too? but maybe the strangest aspect of the case was how difficult it appeared to be for the few who attempted to explain what the Russian had done. I don't mean only what he had done wrong. I mean what he had done, his job. He was usually described as a high-frequency trading programmer, but that wasn't an explanation. That was a term of art that in the summer of 2009, most people, even on Wall Street, had never before heard. What was high-frequency trading? Why was the code that enabled Goldman Sachs to do it so important that when it was discovered to have been copied by some employee, Goldman Sachs needed to call the FBI? If this code was at once so incredibly valuable and so dangerous to financial markets, how did a Russian who had worked for Goldman
1: Sachs for a mere two years
7: get his hands
1: on it? Flash Boys by Michael Lewis. I bet they don't just eat their almost overripe tomatoes from the market and look what happened to them. That extract from the audiobook was read by Dylan Baker and it's available now. And that's it from The Penguin Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes for future podcast episodes and head to SoundCloud for other author readings and audiobook extracts at www.soundcloud.com forward slash penguin-books. To find out more about the authors and books featured in this episode, visit the website, thepenguinpodcast.co.uk. And if you have any comments or suggestions, you can email them to podcast at uk.penguingroup.com or find us on Twitter, at Penguin Podcast.
6: You've been listening to The Penguin Podcast.